Good morning, church. If you would, please. You should have to open your Bibles because the verses are in your bulletin. But if you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 38. We'll also be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1. And two, the title of today's sermon is called The Knowledge of the Other. Uh, I got that from uh, Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, In Matthew uh, chapter 22, Jesus is reasoning with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Uh, And he answers uh, the man of the law who asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And you know what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the second is like, or the second is unto it, or like it. And when Jesus says the second is like it, I always wondered, what what does that mean? Well, one can make the argument that they are alike because they both demand and require love. They both require a certain posture of the heart. They both require discomfort and sacrifice. These two commandments have the same substance. Loving one another is of the same substance as loving God. And not only is it of the same substance, not only do these two commandments consist of the same things, but together, They are a summation of all the law and all the prophets. That is, they sum up the whole Old Testament. One could say all of Scripture. So if one is not loving their neighbor, what are we doing? According to John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. Thus, to not be loving our brother or sister, our neighbor, is to walk in darkness. To say that we love God and despise our brothers or sisters because of cultural differences, political positions, financial situations, or the way we respond to social events, the coronavirus, We deceive ourselves to think that we are walking in the truth. We become liars. So biblically, to understand God or right is to understand our relationship with others, and especially our spiritual kinsmen, our brother and sisters in the faith. So by way of transition, into the text, I have a question for us, and I want us to answer this this morning. Why are Jesus' teachings in his Sermon on the Mount so radical? Well, in order order for us to answer this question, let's take a look at these verses. I will read Matthew 5, 21 through 37. I'll pray, and then we'll read the other text as we go along in the sermon. 
Matthew 5, 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before, you, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king, of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you indeed that your word does stand forever. And this morning, we ask that your word would go forth for the purpose for which you send it. Use me this morning, Lord, and would you speak clearly, transformatively, effectively, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, we're about to make our way through 21 through 37, but as we do, I want us to answer these questions, or this question, really. Who does Jesus have in mind for us to have in mind as he's giving these commands? Well, let me ask it in more biblical terms, particularly in the terms of Philippians chapter, one, verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In these commands, whose interests are we to have in mind? Who are we to be considering more significant? Let's look at verses 21 through 26. In 22 and 23, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, obviously, or, or, or uh, it's assumed to someone else, he will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift, go make it right. And then in verse 25, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Verse 22, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So apparently, we have two parties in mind, two people whose interests we ought to be considering. Primarily, God, because before him we're liable. Secondarily, our brother or sister who has something against us or who has accused us. So we have God in mind, we have others in mind. Verse 27 through 32. Verse 28 says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. And we often assume that to mean whoever just looks upon a woman lustfully. But Dr. D.A. Carson, he makes a strong argument that for the Greek to make the most sense, it is more appropriate to translate verse 28. Whoever looks at a woman so as to get her to lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So not only is he, trying, not only is he lusting after her, but he is enticing her to lust after him. And this is connected to verses 31 and 32 actually which says, it is also said, whoever divorces, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorce, divorced woman commits adultery. So who does Jesus have us to have in mind to consider? Whose interest or to have in mind, primarily the Lord's, because again, he is the one to whom we're liable. Um, he's the one who can judge us uh, with the, the, the hell of fire or the fire of hell. But also we are to have in mind the woman or the man who is being tempted to lust, right? Or the husband or wife who is being divorced or their potential future spouse. We have God in mind and we have others in mind. In verses 33 through 37, whose interest are we to be considering? Who, do we, who are we to have in mind? Well, Jesus tells us here pretty clearly that we humans have no authority over any of these realms, including heaven, earth. For them, it was Jerusalem. For us, maybe we put it that we, we swear on our mother or grandmother's grave. Not even the hairs on our head do we have authority over. And because none of these things belong to us, we have no authority to swear by them. To do so offends and makes us liable 
to the rightful owner, that is, God. Therefore, we are to have him in mind. And if we tell somebody our yes, then we are to have them in mind in fulfilling what we told them we would do. And as Pastor David spoke uh, uh, pretty clearly on last week when it comes to retaliation, we ought to have those who have offended us in mind. As well as God, as we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in verse 49. So the text makes it clear that we're to always have God in mind. Colossians makes it clear to seek the things that are above, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. First Peter tells us clearly to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But here, Jesus makes it plain that the life we live in pursuit of his kingdom and his righteousness The life we live in pursuit of the holy consists of having others in mind. To have God in mind is to have others in mind. And to not have others in mind in pursuit of the knowledge of the holy is not to know him. And this knowledge of the other, which is based on the knowledge of our covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, This knowledge of the other is to be accepted with the same sobriety as the teachings of Jesus. Now, what I mean by that is when you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is it not heavy? Do those words not weigh heavy on you? When you read 1 John, is it not weighty? It should be. Those words should be uncomfortable because those words contradict our sinful nature. They shouldn't make us feel that comfortable, but that's okay. And there are other places in Scripture that give us comfort, particularly Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. It reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question is, why does this bring us comfort? Why should it be a comfort to us? Have you ever been about to go to a a place that you thought was scary? It could be a haunted house. It could be um, camping out in the woods. It could be a place you've never been before, like a foreign city or country. And as you think about going, you say to yourself, 
I really don't want to go by myself. I don't know if I can go by myself. And so you ask your friend to go with you. And they agree to it. They agree to go with you. Now, the thought of going is still pretty scary. You're still nervous, right? It still brings you, uh, still, still, um, you still feel those nerves. Well, because your friend has agreed to go with you, you decide to go. And like camping in the woods, even though it's scary, you are experiencing it with good company because your friend has gone with you. You're not alone in the experience. They are with you. They see what you see. They feel what you feel. And they are still walking with you. Philippians 2 is like that for us. It's like that for us in our pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The way of the kingdom is a scary narrow and hard road. And it's scary, it's narrow, it is difficult because it requires denial of self. It requires a mind that is set on the glory of God and the benefit of our spiritual kinsmen primarily and those others who made the image of God secondarily. These verses comfort us because Paul tells us that this is the mind we are to have to do Philippians 2, 1 through 4. That is, look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. To consider others more significant than ourselves. It's based on this, what Christ did for us. And putting off the advantages and the benefits of being God. And when we live like him, and we suffer loss for it. We are in good company. I would say the best company even. He knows the loss. He knows the pain of the loss. He knows the strain it is. Yet more profoundly, because he is God. And in his word, by his Holy Spirit, in our pursuits, He tells us, keep going. Keep living with me in mind. Keep swimming. Keep loving one another with me in mind. I am with you. I have been where you are and it is going to be okay. As you seek me, remember that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the question I had when I saw this text is what exactly did Jesus have joy in? 
Was the joy merely in enduring the cross? Was Jesus' joy merely in dying by crucifixion? Family, I think not. The joy set before Jesus was on the other side of the cross and him fulfilling the will of his Father. The joy that Jesus had was in glorifying the Father. The joy that Jesus had was being the salvation for his brother. The joy that Jesus had was being his brother's keeper. Now think about me how offensive this is. Someone dying for their enemy in order that that enemy might become a former enemy and now become family. And now add to that a joy in that pursuit. How offensive is that to our senses? It is absolutely scandalous. Absolutely. And yet that's exactly what the God-man did in Christ Jesus. So this brings us back to the question at hand. Why are Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount deemed so radical? And in fact, why are they so radical? Because they are. Well, it's because Jesus' teachings are an exact representation of his existence as God incarnate. And Jesus prescribing how his people are to live in accordance with the kingdom of God, there is an implicit description of who he is and what he is doing even as he's speaking. What's so radical, so beyond this world about his teachings and his incarnation? It is this, Jesus, as profoundly and deeply as possible, came and did what he did, not having himself in mind. And that calls us to respond to him likewise, to not have ourselves in mind in our living. Jesus placed the benefits, the advantages of being God aside for his brethren because he had the glory of God in mind and he had his brothers in mind. And this made me think about Cain in Genesis. God comes to Cain as Cain or as Abel. And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And as a matter of fact, yes, he was his brother's keeper. And because of Jesus and and Jesus being our keeper, we are our brother's keeper. And this keeping that God has called us to is absolutely profound. And it is sacrificial. Brothers and sisters, It hurts. It hurts us personally. When you die to yourself, when you give up something for, it could be your child. I remember one day I was eating uh, some chicken nuggets and uh, I was on my last chicken nugget and they were really good. And 
Isabel, my daughter, she asked for my last chicken nugget. And it's my, it's my daughter, so I, I willingly gave her to it. But the reality is, it still hurts. Like, there, there, I, I felt something inside of me, like I lost it. Huh. Now, think about, that's a microcosm of the sacrifices, of the sacrificial nature of living in this body with other sinners who we don't agree with. And because of what Jesus did, how much more are we to be willing to experience those sacrificial losses for the sake of God's glory and one another? It will cost us personally, it will cost us in society, it will cost us economically, it will cost us relationally, it will cost us physically. Brothers and sisters, understand that being our brother's keeper is dangerous. Now you may be asking, why do I find it necessary to talk about it? Why do I find it necessary to preach on this this morning? Well, I have two reasons. First reason, one of the things uh, that you'll notice as you read through the New Testament is that whenever the context is dealing with adversity, the author always tries to get the theme theme across to love one another. You see it in Romans, you see it in Corinthians, you see it in Philippians, you see it in Thessalonians, you see it in Peter, you see it in John, you see it in Hebrews. And the reality is we find ourselves in the midst of much adversity. From the coronavirus, from the issues of race in the church and injustice, to the issues financially, economically, should we wear masks or not, politics, voting. Which brings me to the second point. In these things that I just just named, brothers and sisters, there are so many wedges that we are allowing to get between us. So many wedges that we are letting the world press between us. Some of these wedges are really big. Race, for example. Some of these wedges are small, mask or not. Nonetheless, all of these wedges are dangerous. They are absolutely dangerous because they get in our way of the pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when, we let, and when we let these wedges get in the way, they damage the witness. Jesus says explicitly, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. If what? What does he say? I ask you, if you love one another, 
And yet, when we allow these wedges to get in the way, I'm afraid people see that and don't want that. Because we're not existing as we ought to be, and that is as a body. Dr. Brent Stenberg, earlier this week, he gave a little um, uh, a talk to our staff. One of the things he said is that, that we are not to let the world press us into its mold. And brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that that's what's happening. That we are allowing, that we are allowing the world to press us into its mold and the way we respond to one another. So that's why I find this necessary. I want us to be in lockstep with scripture, to love one another in the midst of whatever transpires in this world. Because I think according to scripture, the way we love one another is one of the greatest testimonies we have in this world. Because it is one of the most vivid depictions of Christ's love for us. So what does this mean then, right? This means keeping our eyes on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we cannot leave this alone. This must be the standard by which we live. Not what the world tells us. Not what the news tells us. Not what our homies tell us, not what our coworkers tell us. The word of God has to be it. Because in this, you know the way. In this, you know the truth. And in this, you know life. And Peter said it clearly. Where else can we go? Jesus, you have it. No one else does. So it means us keeping our eyes on Jesus in his word and it also means us praying. As we talked about earlier, we have control over none of this. All of this is his. And like children who are desperate, we must call out to our heavenly father to work, to help us, to give us what we need to live like Jesus, to give us what we need to speak the truth and love to give us what we need to bear one another's burdens and to bear with one another. This means fighting against our flesh not to assume the worst about other Christians who think differently than we do about the coronavirus and helping other brothers and sisters who might assume the worst not to do so when you hear it or when you see it. This means awkwardly entering into conversations about the problems of race in the church. Now, the reality is race is not the only problem that exists, but it is a problem and it's a big problem. And we gotta talk about it in order for us to be healed. And it is uncomfortable, but it's okay. This means taking the proper, proper measures to limit our time on social media or watching the news in order that the news 
or social media might not be what we use to determine how we respond to other people we don't agree with. It's easy to do that. It's very easy. So let us fight against that. And lastly, this means changing the way we view what we have. What we have is given us by God. The gifts we have, the talents we have, the resources we have are given us by God. And they're given us by God in order to be given, not to hold on to. And the reality is that all of us are given abundances in things and all of us have deficiencies. And the purpose of our gifts, the purpose of our abundances is for there to be a mutual sharing of these things to make up for the deficiencies that we have. And as we do this, it allows for equal honor according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And this equal honor, the end of this equal honor is said explicitly, in order that there may be no division among us. So in closing, would you reimagine with me for a few moments? Let's reimagine our church where every member knows their gifts, knows their strengths, their talents, and also knows their weaknesses, their deficiencies. And we humbly admit these things. And as we humbly admit these things, we mutually share our strengths, our gifts, in order to make up for that which lacks in one another. Now let's take a little bit further. Now imagine the different ages and stages in our church, right? And each age and stage knows our strengths and we know our weaknesses. And in humbly admitting these two things, we mutually share our our strengths in order to make up for the places that we lack. Now let's take it a step further to churches in our city. Churches that hold to the fundamental tenets of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, died, rose again on the third day, is seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again, and is the only means of salvation by by grace through faith. Churches that believe that, knowing their gifts, knowing their strengths, and also aware of their weaknesses, and humbly admitting those things, There's a mutual sharing of our strengths in order to make up for that which lacks in one another in order that there may be no division among us. Even take that denominationally. Again, that holds to the fundamental tenets of the gospel. Humbly admitting their strengths, humbly admitting their weaknesses, our weaknesses, and in doing so, mutually sharing these gifts, these strengths to make up for our weaknesses in order that there may be no division among us. 
Think about how much more joy there would be in the church. Think about how much more freedom you would have not to consider yourself in mind, but to have your brothers and sisters and God Almighty in mind. There is freedom in putting on the mind of Christ because in that we aren't consumed with ourselves, brothers and sisters. And family, there is joy in that because it is grounded in the joy that Christ had in enduring for us. May God give us what we need to know him, to love him, and to love our brothers and sisters in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would give us what we need to be like you. God, it is, it is so hard. It is so difficult. Because we, we want what we want. But the radical nature of the kingdom, the radical teachings of the Sermon on the Mount reflect the radical action that you took in coming. Lord Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to glorify the Father. and We want to love other people. Help us. Help us. Help us in the face of all the temptations from the evil one who wants us to do otherwise. This we pray desperately in the name of our Savior, our Keeper, our Brother, Jesus. Amen.